Good morning. Uh, before we call our first case, I'd like to note that uh, this morning is uh, the first uh, that of Justice Riggs to participate with our court. She was uh, duly sworn in this morning, and uh, we look forward to her participation with us. Our first case this morning is Beavers versus McMikin, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honors, uh, may it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I am J. Patrick Williams of Bashpore and Williams, PC, and I represent the defendant appellate, John McMicken, in this matter. At this time, I'd like to reserve approximately five minutes for rebuttal. Um, what we are dealing with in this matter is a motion for summary judgment that was granted at the trial court level and overturned on appeal based on the logic of um, the Rodriguez case. Um, the two claims that are pending at the trial court level were an alienation of affection claim and a criminal conversation claim. Um, briefly, alienation of affection has two elements. One element which is at issue, or three elements, I'm sorry, one element which is at issue. The one is that there was a marriage with love and affection assisting, existing between husband and wife. No one refused that element is in place. Um, that love and affection was alienated. That That is ne not necessarily being, was not, next, was not, um, argued at the trial court level. The third element, which is the malicious acts of the defendant produced the loss of love and affection, or, or what's at issue here. That's been defined uh, by the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court um, in two ways. The first way is any intentional conduct that would pr probably affect the marital relationship. I would argue that's not at issue here. If you look at the Court of Appeals decision in paragraph 18, they said that's not at issue. They're deciding this exclusively on the second definition which is that malice is conclusively presumed uh, by showing that the defendant engaged in sexual intercourse with the plaintiff's wife. Same paragraph, 18. Um, with criminal conversation, you're, you're pretty much dealing with the same thing. This is a case where we're trying to decide whether sexual intercourse occurred prior to the date of separation. The plaintiff must prove a marriage between spouses. Again, no one refused that. Two, that sexual intercourse between the defendant and the plaintiff's spouse during the marriage um, occurred. Uh, the statute at issue here, the first, we, we raised two issues to be raised on appeal. The first is that the holding in Rodriguez is inconsistent with the legislative intent behind General Statute 5213. And the second is that the majority opinion erroneously relied on pre-separation evidence that failed to rise to more than a mere conjecture in reversing the trial court's order. I first want to address the legislative intent. Um, 52-13 does not say anything at all, is silent as to whether or not post-separation uh, conduct can be used to corroborate pre-separation evidence. It reads, no act of the defendant shall give rise to a cause of action for alienation of affection or criminal conversation that occurs after the plaintiff and the plaintiff's spouse physically separate with the intent of either the plaintiff or the plaintiff's spouse that the physical separation remain permanent. Rodriguez is the case that adds some, some context to that statute. Rodriguez states um, that it can be used to corroborate post-separation conduct can be used to corroborate pre-separation conduct so long as the pre-separation conduct is sufficient to give rise to more than a mere conjecture. I'm sure you hear arguments with regards to legislative intent all the time, but this one I believe is more compelling. When 52-13 was before the House of Representatives, there was an amendment that was presented, the third amendment that was presented, that purported to include the exact language that Rodriguez added in the case law. The amendment wanted to add, nothing herein shall prevent a court from considering incidents of post-separation support acts by the defendant as corroborating evidence supporting other evidence that the defendant committed acts during the marriage and prior to the date of separation, which would give rise to a cause of action for alienation of affection and criminal conversation. That amendment was voted on and it, was, and it failed. So there was an opportunity and it was, it was the intent of someone in the legislature to add that amendment to include that language in the statute and it failed. It is our position that that amendment being presented and being voted on by the House of Representatives um, specifically means that they did not intend to include this information in the statute. I'm Isn't sorry. it possible that the legislators then went back and talked to each other and said, you know what, we don't need this amendment because the text of the statute already says this. It's, it would be redundant, so let's not bother. I mean, in other words, the fact that someone proposed the amendment says nothing about what the law as it's enacted actually means so don't we just look at what the language of the statute says it's possible that that was discussed what i would submit to the court is that the, the the statute specifically does not say 
that post-separation acts can be used to corroborate. There are other statutes in North Carolina that include that language, including the alimony statute and the post-separation support statute. This statute explicitly left that out. It was explicitly requested to be included and it was voted down. It was, it was, it was not passed. So this is, and then Rodriguez decided that, decided that issue because the statute was ambiguous as to whether or not post-separation conduct could be used to pre prove pre-separation conduct. Council, when we say we're bound by legislative intent, we, we mean we're bound by the intent of the entire legislature, the Senate and the House. Um, what does it, how, how, why is it relevant to us that one House uh, rejected the amendment, even if we take that to mean what you say it means, that the House decided um, uh, that it wouldn't be a good idea, um, that doesn't tell us anything about the Senate. That's true in the, in the sense that it, it doesn't tell you anything about the Senate. What I would submit to the court is um, the House, the House is who passed the bill initially, um, and that language was voted on by the Senate and approved when the bill was ratified. So I would submit to the court that, um, to my knowledge, I, and I don't want to misrepresent anything as to what the Senate did, I, I, what I know is that the House wrote the original bill, the language that passed from the House is a language that, would actually, that was actually voted in the law in what is, what is now 52-13. And can I just be clear that um, the, this legislative process that you're talking about, that happened in 2009. That's right? correct. And Rodriguez was 2018. That's correct. Um, so the, the, in 2009, the legislature may not have known what this court might say about how to prove what post-separation evidence may or may not be used for, correct? That is correct. But isn't it also possible that in 2009, the legislature said, we're not going to decide this. Um, it, the business of, of determining what types of evidence is competent to prove which facts, we'll leave that up to the courts to work out. It is very possible they could have done that in session. I don't, I don't know if that was done or not, but um, I understand your logic with regards to that. And so if that were true, then, then, it, then it would be perfectly fine for us to rely on Rodriguez as controlling precedent. That's correct, if that were true. Uh, um, and, and before you go on, uh, just so I'm clear about the process at the General Assembly, uh, this was a floor amendment. It did not pass through committee. Can you give us some context about how this arrived in front of the uh, representatives? It was a floor amendment, and it was voted on. I believe the full House voted on it. Um, so it was, I believe it was a 58 to 61 vote failed. But it did not go through committee so that it could be fully vetted. Is that... Is that true? There's no record that it was a committee amendment. Looking at the amendment, it appears it was written by a senator and then voted on by the full house. I don't know that it went through committee. Thank you, sir. No problem. Um, so that, that's the argument with regards to the legislative intent. Obviously, Rodriguez has passed. We, can, we understand that it's precedent at this point in the event that the court finds um, that legislative intent is not a reason to overturn that. It is our position also that under the Rodriguez, um, under what is established in Rodriguez, that in this case, the facts are not sufficient, we believe, to present the case to a jury. Um, and I would, would like to go over a couple of items. Uh, and before you proceed on, I do have one other question. Uh, is it your position that there is an ambiguity or not in the statute? Uh, do we really need to look at legislative intent if the statute is not ambiguous? Would you please uh, enlighten us as what your, your position is on that? Yes, Your Honor. Um, the statute is silent as to how post-separation conduct can be used to prove pre-separation acts. And I would submit to the court that Rodriguez states that there is an ambiguity and aims to make and, and makes the decision as to whether as to how post-separation acts can be used to pre, prove pre-separation conduct. And a follow-up, sir. So, uh, is it your position that uh, being silent is is an ambiguity, or are you say, stating this because of the law in Rodriguez? Um, personally. After reviewing the amendment and the record of this statute passing, I would submit to the court that it is our position that it was a conscious decision by the House of Representatives not to include how post-separation support should be used because there was a specific amendment passed or, or that was voted on that, that took out language that Rodriguez ultimately ends up adding via case law. So yeah, I, I don't think that there was any confusion there. Um, Council, I do want to, I want to let you get on to the There's no the evidence because I do think that's your stronger argument. But you, you know, you did ask us to consider overruling Rodriguez, so I, I want to ask a few more quick questions about that. But okay. first is, um, 
So the statute says no act of the defendant shall give rise to a cause of action for alienation of sexual criminal conversation that occurs after the separation. Mm -hmm. And that language, you know, give rise to a cause of action, is like a term of art. We see it often in the law. And the, the way I was thinking about it was, for example, if you had an automobile accident where a driver ran the red light, and but there were many witnesses. So let's say it's dark, and but then later that driver tells some people, you know, I feel terrible. You know, years later, I I know I ran the red light. I mean, you that would be evidence that would prove the cause of action, but it doesn't give rise to the cause of action. What gave rise to the cause of action was running through the red light years earlier, the negligence. And isn't a similar thing here, which is the what gave rise to the cause of action is the allegations about what happened before the separation. This evidence is just something that's being used to prove that it happened then. Is, where is an ambiguity if we just said that's what the language of the statute is trying to do? In other words, just saying as a policy matter, we're never going to let you, we're not going to have any alienation, affection, or criminal conversation issues after separation. What's wrong with just interpreting the statute that way? What I would submit to the court is prior to 5213 being passed, it was clear that post-separation acts could be used to prove claims on their own. Um, even without, I mean, obviously there had to be some pre-separation acts, but it was clear that, especially in criminal conversation actions, that post-separation acts could be used to prove the claim. I think that um, there was the FAR case came out that originally said that that's not appropriate, and then that case was overturned, and, and it was still appropriate, and then and basically the court said the legislature needs to act. So the legislature acted, passed 5213. I understand what you're saying, the way the statute is interpreted, and there may be some ambiguity there. Maybe, perhaps some people would read it to say, as you have, that um, the post-separation acts can't give rise to a claim by themselves. Um, normally, I, I would say, hey, that, that's the case. That, the only difference here, I would argue, is when you're talking about corroboration and adding language of mere conjecture, this is the exact language that was voted down. I, I understand that the court has every opportunity to make that distinction and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it. I just think that it's, I thought it was interesting, and I think that it is in conflict that the exact language that Rodriguez uses is the exact language that was voted down in 2009. And I recognize uh, Justice Earls' argument. Obviously, there was eight years between those two things happening. Um, with the facts in this case, we would argue, even if you apply Rodriguez, that there is not sufficient evidence to proceed to a jury. There is not an issue of material fact, which is the issue on summary judgment. Um, specifically, from the Court of Appeals position, um, the, the, the evidence of pre-separation conduct, I believe, tonic to my client, is, is minimal. Um, the first fact that I believe that, is in, that, is, that has been referenced, that was referenced in the plaintiff's deposition, is that he stated he found a text message on his wife's phone prior to the date of separation between his wife and a contact stored on her phone as bestie. Um, I will submit to the court, I think it's important to note that that text message does not exist. It was not produced in discovery. Um, no, no one has this text message. No one's seen it outside of the plaintiff. Um, I would also submit to the court that the plaintiff had every opportunity to ascertain who this bestie person was by finding out the phone number in that contact, he did not do that. So we don't even know who the phone number was identified with this contact for this. I would submit to the court that based on those reasonings, based on that reasoning, um, at, at best, that one text message or that te those text messages are, would not even be admissible in a trial to go to a jury. With that said, the, the content of those text messages, according to the plaintiff, because we don't have the actual text message, is that the plaintiff said he saw a discussion in those text messages of a, a person um, discussing having a sexual relationship with his wife, number one, and that he saw nude pictures being exchanged between his wife and this person. Um, so he confronted her. When he confronted his wife, she stated that she had, she admitted to having an affair. She stated this affair was with an individual named Dustin who was one of her coworkers. Now notice she works at, uh, she worked at Merck. My client does work or did work at Merck um, at the same time. But Merck is not a small company. Merck has over 800 employees. Um, she said she had an affair with someone named Dustin who was one of her co-workers. Um, following that, um, they separated. And after that, my client um, and her started dating about four months after the fact. I would submit to the court other evidence that the court considered in the Court of Appeals is that there were calls between the plaintiff's wife and my client during the marriage. The context of those calls, what was discussed, not in evidence, not in the record, 
No one knows what was discussed during those calls. As I've indicated, my client, they worked together, they worked on the same team. I don't think it's inappropriate or in any way malice to have phone calls with someone that you work with. Um, there is also reference, this was in the uh, plaintiff's Rule 11 supplement, I believe. There were 98 texts in one month between my client and the plaintiff's wife during work hours. Um, I would submit to the court that if you review the record for those text messages, th these are not even authenticated text messages. These are, this is a document that was provided by, the, by my client's wife without any headline that says what phone provider these text messages came from. Um, and there is also, when subpoenaed, that document was not turned over by the phone provider. So I would, quest, I would argue that that has admissibility issues. But outside of that, even if there were text messages between my client and the plaintiff's wife prior to the date of separation, the context of those text messages has not been produced. No one has possession of these text messages. So it does not produce, it does not prove malice. It does not, pr it does not prove a sexual relationship. It does not prove inclination and opportunity, even if that is the case. I would argue, and the Court of Appeals agreed, there's no direct evidence of romantic involvement between the plaintiff's wife and my client prior to the start of their relationship after the date of separation. Um, there are several cases that were quoted and that are in the record um, to support the uh, plaintiff's arguments. Um, and again, this, is the whole, this entire case is about whether the pre-separation evidence is more than a mere conjecture or rises to a level of more than mere conjecture and whether the post-separation argument corroborates the pre-separation evidence. Uh, Rodriguez v. Lemus, obviously I brought that up, um, has been the case that has been relied on most. That is the case that added the mere conjecture language, 252.13. I would distinguish that case on several grounds. Um, first and foremost is in the Rodriguez case, there were contacts between the defendant and the plaintiff's spouse when the plaintiff's spouse was away from home. However, these, these are things that don't exist in our case. Two hotel charges on the spouse's credit card bill during the date of separation. And no hotel charges on any credit card bills. There's no evidence that shows any hotel charges um, on anybody's bills that anyone has possession of in this case. A third hotel receipt and information from a third hotel, I'm sorry, a third hotel receipt and information from a hotel employee that the spouse was seen there, was seen, um, I'm sorry, that his spouse was seen there with the defendant or with the woman. Um, again, there is no direct evidence. There is no person, firsthand who has seen my client and plaintiff's wife alone at any point, at any hotel or anywhere. There's no evidence anywhere in the record that shows that they were ever alone at any point. Um, and then the other thing that was found is in the record, I believe this was in the Rule 11 supplement, that there were social media postings, I'm sorry, and, and I'm, I'm skipping around, I'm skipping around. Um, in the Rodriguez case, there were social media postings between defendant and plaintiff in which the plaintiff interpreted as their initials and used as a code between the two of them. There are social media postings in this case. There are in uh, the Rule 11 supplement, my client has liked posts of the plaintiff's wife, but there's nothing that would raise to the level of malice or that would show any type of romantic relationship. Um, Trogdon is another case that is implicated in the record. The Trogdon principle kind of establishes how you prove a sexual relationship. And this, this, this principle is uh, applied in, in alimony cases, it's applied in post-separation support cases, it's applied, in, it's applied in criminal conversation cases. You've heard it before, it is the, you must prove inclination and opportunity. And when you're thinking about summary judgment in this case, your honors, um, pre-separation, there's no evidence of inclination or opportunity. As I stated earlier, there's no evidence that my client and plaintiff's wife have ever had any romantic conversations. There's nothing in the record from any eyewitnesses or any firsthand um, testimony from anyone who works with them on this team who said that they were in any way appropriate or that they were ever alone or that they had any type of flirtatious relationship on the job. That, that does not exist in the record. Opportunity, you would have to establish at some point that the parties were alone um, to, have, to have committed a sexual act. There's no evidence in the record of opportunity. Um, the only evidence of them being uh, together outside of work is they were together at a work lunch. That is it, with other people there. There's a picture of this that may be in the record. Um, there's a picture of this that's in the record of them sitting at a lunch at a table with other coworkers. That is the only, that is the only evidence in the record of that. Now, I, I anticipate that um, the plaintiff will argue that the evidence that they were alone is this text message. But I, I go back to this text message that one, does not identify that my client is a person in this text message, and two, 
does not identify when the sexual acts or whatever acts between this third person who is, there's no evidence that exists that proves this my client. There's no evidence in the record that shows when those acts occurred, where they occurred, who they were with, the timing of those acts or anything. And again, this text message does not exist. Um, Inclination has been defined as the adulterous disposition or inclination of the parties. Again, I argue there's no, no evidence with regards to that and opportunity, like I said, the opportunity to create and satisfy their mutual desires. I, I don't think that defendant was arguing Trogdon as a case based on the facts that um, is akin to this case because the Trogdon facts are, are far and away not the same as this. Trogdon is a case where um, the wife moved out and lived with, her, and lived with another gentleman for two years during the marriage. Um, so that's not what happened here. Um, but Trogdon does offer some guidance, I believe, in what mere conjecture is. Um, if, you, if you look at Trogdon on page 149 and 899, it, discuss, it discusses examples of mere conjecture that would not be appropriate to submit to a jury when trying to prove inclination and opportunity. One such case that it quotes to prove what mere conjecture is not is Horny v. Horny, 56 NC App, 725. Uh, and that's 289 Southeast Reporter 868. In Horny, there was a friendly relationship between the plaintiff's spouse and the defendant. They were alone together on several occasions in the woman's office and on at least one occasion in her home. There were phone calls to the defendant, to the spouse from the defendant when he was out of town on business. The husband was often away from home on Saturday afternoons and the husband refused to sleep with his wife. And they found that that was insufficient to go to a jury. They found that it was mere conjecture. Ultimately, my time is running a lot faster than I anticipated. <laughs> um, at ultimately, Your Honor, Your Honors, what this comes down to is the plaintiff wants to prove the identity of a person in a text message between him, his wife, and, a, and an identified third, he wants to prove the identity of this person with post-separation evidence. And mind you, the only post-separation evidence is that my client and, and the um, plaintiff's wife started dating about four months, three or four months after the date of separation. He wants to prove the identity of a text message that does not exist, that we do not have any information on who the text message is between. He wants to prove the identity of that person with the fact that my client ultimately ended up dating his wife. We find that that is, we believe that that is mere speculation. That is a jump that juries should not be able to make. Obviously, juries have a reason, have a, have a, have a duty to do fact finding in cases. I completely acknowledge that and understand it. But what you don't want to submit in front of a jury is to have them make a pure speculation argument or to, to, to decide something that is pure speculation. And when you're thinking about that from a jury's perspective, ultimately, all that would have to be found to send a case for a jury in any, in any work setting. If, you work, if you're in a work setting and you work with others, you're going to talk to them. If you have a close relationship with them, you're on the same team, you may talk to them on the phone. You may send them text messages. You may send them messages on your inner office tool or whatever you use to chat. If this case is allowed to stand, indicating that this is sufficient to send to a jury, then you're looking at a situation where whoever a person starts to date after the marriage is a, is a person who could be sued for any nature of affection, and then you're leaving it up to a jury without any evidence identifying any inclination or opportunity prior to the date of separation. You're leaving it up to a jury to determine whether this person is the same person that someone had an affair with without any link there. We would submit to the court based on that that the trial court was correct in granting the motion for summary judgment in this matter um, due to the lack of evidence identifying my client as the person who the uh, plaintiff's wife's had an affair with. Um, Counsel, add, I'm sorry. A factual question. Yes, sir. Um, so the plaintiff and uh, his ex-wife now separated in December of 2016. Um, how soon thereafter did your client and his ex-wife separate? Ooh, that is a good one. Is that um, is that in the record? It is, it is probably in the record. I prepare for a lot of questions. That is not one that I know off the top of my head. Um, well, I, I believe it was prior. I believe it was prior to their separation, but I, 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 would, I need to check on that, and I can answer that question for you on rebuttal. I'm not positive that it's the answer to that off the top of my head. Okay, thank you. Um, 
I would also like to submit in my, in my last 35 seconds, Your Honor, um, there has been there there has been expansive discovery in this case um, to find proof of pre-separation evidence, and that discovery has not produced this text message. Is, it has not produced text records between my client and the plaintiff's wife. Um, there's no PI evidence. There's no GPS evidence. No tracking evidence that establishes in any manner that my client has. Uh, was alone with the uh, plaintiff prior to the date of separation or had any opportunity to commit sexual acts with her. Um, at that time, I'll rest my argument and save for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, Chief Justice Newby and Associate Justices. May it please the court, my name is John Samankowitz, uh, and I'm here representing plaintiff appellee in this matter. My colleague, Jamie Wasensky, and I will be sharing time in this argument today. Specifically, uh, I'll be presenting our argument regarding the Court of Appeals opinion in Rodriguez and the application of the standard of review uh, for summary judgment. Ms. Wasensky will be happy to go through uh, additional fact-based uh, application of those uh, to summary judgment. Uh, before I move on to our argument in chief, I have to beg the court's indulgence as I do not consider myself a litigator. Uh, I consider myself a transactional attorney and through a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances, I find myself here the first time before any appellate court. So um, forgive my, my inexperience. Be that as it may, plaintiff appellee uh, argues that Rodriguez is properly decided and applied in this case. Appellant argues that Rodriguez is bad law and wrongly decided uh, based on the Court of Appeals' incorrect interpretation of the statute. With respect, appellant has drawn the wrong conclusion when considering the plain meaning of the statute, this court's previous rulings, and the legislative history of the statute. The legislative history does indicate that the legislator refused to adopt a floor amendment that would have expressly uh, allowed post-separation conduct to inform pre-separation conclusions. Argue, uh, appellant argues that because the legislature refused to adopt that amendment, the legislature must mean precisely the opposite of that, uh, of that amendment. Lennox v. Tolson says we should look first to the plain language of the statute, then to legislative history, and finally to the spirit of the act and the act and what the act seeks to accomplish. First, Rodriguez, does, as decided, does no violence to the plain language of the statute. It adds additional context but doesn't create any disparity with the, the plain language. Second, the reading of the legislative history creates a tenuous link to that uh, express amendment and should not be used to sustain an argument that this court should read into law a limitation based on the legislature's refusal to uh, adopt an express allowance on that topic. The court's ruling uh, in North Carolina Department of Corrections versus North Carolina Medical Board addresses this issue almost entirely. Specifically, Department of Corrections says the intent of the legislature is ordinarily identified from, indicated by its actions, not its failure to act. Then the court can give weight to acts where, which were simply, uh, excuse me, the court cannot give weight to acts which were simply proposed in committee. Reasons for a particular bill, or in this case, an amendment to not pass can be numerous. We don't know what those reasons were in this situation. Uh, and the court should not look to internal deliberations of the committee uh, or committees of the legislature. In this state, uh, in this situation, uh, uh, one of your honors pointed out that this was a floor amendment. This was actually proposed by a representative from the floor after the second reading of that, um, of that bill. So between the second and third reading, the, the amendment was uh, proposed, handwritten into the record, and then voted down. The, the amendment was removed, the bill passed, and was handed to the Senate the same day. Within hours of the second reading, this was added, dropped, read again, voted on, and passed on. Uh, that seems to indicate this was not the result of considered debate, long-term discussion back and forth, or in, in uh, the, the uh, circumstances mentioned, or committee vetting. This did not have the opportunity to do that. Perhaps the, the representative had foresight and saw this as, as an issue coming down the pike and maybe that was an opportunity to include it. We don't know at this point.
Counselor, uh, along that line, what do you make of the fact that there are statutes in North Carolina that do have similar language and this one does not? Um, how, how do you reconcile that in the context of Rodriguez and what, what has gone on with the court and your discussion of uh, legislation, legislator action? Sure. Um, as a result of, of FAR and that series of cases, it's clear that the legislature wanted to limit what would, what would give rise to these, uh, these, these course, uh, claims of action. Why the court would not add this in, I would defer to the, the question earlier, which is the competency of evidence, what should be allowed to be heard by a court, is probably best defined by the court, and only in extreme situations where the, the legislature says this is no longer an option. We should not be doing this as a matter of policy. In that situation, the court acts uh, and, and makes a, or excuse me, the, the legislature acts and makes a statement that makes it very clear. Here, they leave that open to the court where we all know it is the responsibility of the court to say what the law actually is. Um, as a result of, of this, what we feel a tenuous connection to this amendment uh, and then being voted down, and as uh, Your Honor pointed out earlier, this did not make it to both houses. This was one, uh, nearest we can tell, one uh, representative uh, on the floor suggesting this amendment. It did not go to, the uh, go to the Senate, and the Senate did not have a similar bill. Oftentimes bills are presented in both houses simultaneously and then uh, joined after being passed in a, a um, uh, mitigating or, or reconciliation process. There wasn't one from the Senate, nearest we can tell. This was strictly passed over from the House. The Senate adopted it as it was. I'd like to draw the court's uh, attention to the standard of review for summary judgment. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about mere conjecture and where this fits. Um, but the, the law on summary judgment is fairly clear that if there is an issue of triable fact, it should go to the uh, it should go to, it should proceed, it should survive summary judgment. As, as um, defendant appellant mentioned, uh, the, there seems to, apologize. The main issue as to summary judgment seems to surround whether or not the plaintiff appellee uh, is able to prove that defendant appellant is the purported paramour in this case. We'll be focusing on that portion rather than the other elements because those have not been brought up as issues at this point. Specifically here, uh, the court's review is of course de novo. The court shall consider all facts asserted by the, the non-moving party as taken to true and viewed in the light most favorable to that party, and that summary judgment is only proper where there's no genuine issue of material fact. We're all pretty comfortable with that formulation. As we delve into that detail, though, we realize that, of course, or there is a off-sided uh, statement that summary judgment is an extreme remedy and should, is appropriate when the face of the complaint shows an insurmountable bar to recovery on any theory. Uh, under Collingwood versus Electric, all inferences from the proofs offered at the hearing must be drawn against the movement and in favor of the party in the, uh, in the motion. In this situation, it appears that the trial court viewed the summary judgment hearing as to whether the plaintiff or uh, whether the plaintiff at that time had produced evidence that would enable a trier of fact to find for the plaintiff rather than whether the plaintiff could produce evidence to support that finding. Discover, uh, defendant uh, appellant says, you know, discovery was uh, substantial. Discovery was not complete at the time of summary judgment, as is evidenced by the fact that during uh, the hearing, both parties referenced uh, depositions that had been taken literally days before. So the process was still ongoing and the court recognized that there were these things, though at that point the, the court did not consider them. We yeah, contend. The, the Court of Appeals seemed to struggle with this too, but the, the rules of civil procedure provide a mechanism to say to a trial court, don't rule, don't enter judgment as a matter of law yet. I've got more evidence I plan to forecast, you know, give me some time. And so that, you know, this part of the case seems odd because in the, looking at the record, it doesn't appear that the, all of that happened, the usual argument of, you know, give us this time and we'll, the court just went ahead and ruled even knowing that there was more evidence out there. What, what happened, um, your understanding? 
Certainly. Uh, from our perspective, the, the, the hearing transpired. We mentioned that there was this outstanding evidence or that we were still in the process. And further, that that evidence, having heard those depositions, we thought would lead to additional evidence. Um, however, the court, I believe, in this situation relied on what was in front of them and felt that that was insufficient, um, even with additional potential evidence, to, to, to find in our favor in that sense and let us survive summary judgment. Uh, and we believe the court simply got that wrong. And we, uh, to our error, did not argue at that point for either a continuance or additional time. Um, I wanted to draw the court's attention to uh, Coachman, uh, where evidence is properly considered on motion for summary judgment includes admissions in the pleadings, depositions on file, answers to interrogatories, admissions on file, affidavits, and any other material which would be admissible in evidence uh, or which judicial notice may be taken. So at that point, the evidence need not necessarily be admissible or, or, um, or be present, but would be admissible if it exists. We discussed Trogdon earlier, uh, or uh, defendant uh, appellant discussed Trogdon. The issue we wanted to focus on Trogdon is the Trogdon stands for the proposition that very seldom will we find direct evidence in this situation. Almost all of these cases are decided based on circumstantial evidence. And so to have detailed information of, of no, we saw this person engaged in this, no, we saw this happen, we had um, uh, telephone records that weren't scrubbed or, or lost one way or another over time, is unusual. So by uh, um, indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence, is the way we would see this happening. Now, whether or not this rises above mere conjecture is the next question. We argue that uh, there is more than mere conjecture, obviously, in this case, uh, in, in respect to the pre-separation conduct. Mr. Williams points out a few pieces of, of information and taken individually, they do send, tend to sound like potentially innocuous opportunities. However, taken as a whole, as, they, as the, the facts stack up, there you can lead to an inference, or can, it can lead to an inference that more than a friendly work conversation was going on. And specifically under um, appeal by McCreary, substantial evidence is such relevant evidence as a reasonable mind might accept as adequate to support a conclusion and is more than a scintilla or a permissible evidence. Um, we say that there is substantial evidence here, uh, and specifically further, with respect to Smith v. Curry, the non-moving party doesn't have to convince the trial court that it can prevail on a tribal issue, merely the tribal issue exists. And in fact, in the transcript from the, the uh, summary judgment hearing, defense counsel even admits that there is an existence of, uh, of an issue of fact between the complaint's allegations and the deposition testimony of the defendant and deposition testimony of the plaintiff. So we have something there where there is clear contradiction in testimony. That alone probably should have given us the opportunity to at least place that before uh, a trier of fact. But under Smith, um, the court says, summary judgment is improper where issues such as motive, intent, uh, or other subjective feelings and reactions are material and where evidence is subject to conflicting interpretations or in cases where reasonable men may differ as to its significance. And we argue that here we have conflicting interpretations of evidence. Could it be innocent? Yes. Could it be something else? Yes. And we have, you know, the, the, the court is in a position at that point not to find fact in that, in that answer. Um, at this point, I'm going to conclude my portion of the argument and let uh, Ms. Wasensky go through uh, because I'm sure your honors have multiple issues or questions regarding the specific facts, as that's what most of the summary judgment will turn on. Uh, I will let Ms. Ms. Wasensky go over those details. Good morning, Chief Justice and Associate Chief Justices. My name is Jamie Lewisensky, and I'm here on behalf of Plaintiff uh, David Beavers with my co-counsel, Forrest John Smankiewicz. Um, we definitely appreciate the opportunity to split this time accordingly. Um, I'd like to start first by um, refreshing this court um, of the holding that Mr. Smankiewicz went over with calling 
Collingwood v. General Electric, which states that all inferences of fact from the proofs offered at the hearing must be drawn against the movement in favor of the party opposing the motion. But I just wanted to refresh the court of that, but I'd like to start with the background of the parties. So first, let's start with the plaintiff. We've got the plaintiff, David Beavers, with his wife, Allison Beavers. Both David and Allison Beavers met at a very young age when they both went to church together at the Pentecostal church they attended until their date of separation. They married on October 23rd, 2004. They had three wonderful kids that they both adore. And of course, you know, everything that comes with divorce, they pretty much saw all that through at the lower courts. And then um, on December 17th, 2016, due to no fault of the plaintiff, then they ultimately separated. Their marriage was officially over and their divorce date was finalized on April 18th of 2018. Looking at the defendant and his background, we've got John and Jessica McMeekin. They also had a traditional high school sweetheart story. They met young, they married young as well, but they were married longer than David and Allison. They were married for 15 years instead of 12. And um, they ultimately separated on, let me see, it was, I wanna say January 14th of 2017. And let's see. Now on, In 2011, the discovery ultimately showed that John and Allison became friends on social media. And this is around the time that Allison began to work at Merck. And also working at Merck, we've got John, Jessica, and Allison, who were all employees of the exact same company. And Jessica ended her employment with Merck in 2015, but John and Allison continued their employment there. And after filing this claim, at some point afterwards, it wasn't shortly afterwards, but it was after, um, one of the two were transferred to a different location while one stayed at the location they originally worked at. So let's dive into the ultimate issues of the pre-separation conduct that led us here based on Rodriguez v. Lemus. Um, in January of 2018, or January 2018, 20, January 18th of 2016, I apologize, uh, the plaintiff ultimately discovered that his ex-wife Allison was sending sexual texts and picture messages to a person that was first named Bestie in her phone. So with their lengthy marriage, of course, the, all he sees is pretty much his world being shattered because he's seeing this going to somebody else. Um, first, of course, she denied that she had an affair with this person. Then she ultimately, um, then she admitted that she had an affair and that it was a co-worker, but she doesn't actually state the name of this individual. Eventually, she provides the plaintiff with the name Dustin, which sent the plaintiff on a wild goose chase looking for a man named Dustin that he never actually discovered and doesn't even believe to be a real person. Um, so at this point, it was reasonably concluded to be a pseudonym for someone. He looked on her Facebook, he looked for best friend's Facebook, and look for anyone that could be anyone named Dustin and never actually found anybody. Counsel, I'm gonna interrupt you real quick. Sure. I just had a, a quick question yes. here, so, which is, um, so was so Allison Beavers was deposed in this case, right? Yes. Did either side just ask the question, who is Bestie? I believe we did ask that question and I don't recall her answer. Okay. Yes. But that's the deposition that wasn't before the trial court. Correct. Yes. Um, let's see. And I assume, just to add to that, and when, during the trial court hearing, the argument that was not evidence, but was sort of forecasting, we have these depositions coming that aren't certified yet. There was not a statement to the trial court, and Allison Beavers testified to who Bestie was, and it's the defendant. I, I wouldn't. I would need to look at the transcript to see what her actual answer was. I don't want to mislead this court. I'm sorry. 
So the interesting piece about what happened in January is that instead of choosing to, of course, end their marriage in January of 2016, the parties move forward with attempting marriage counseling. So they move forward with trying to repair their marriage and move forward. So their marriage is obviously on the rocks given the circumstances. And, you know, they're moving on with working on it. And this is, of course, where the phone records do come into play. And I would like to address the issue of phone records and subpoenaing phone records and what happens with that. So, Council, before, yes. before you get there, let me make sure I understand. Sure. There was no evidence before the trial court as to the identity of Bestie or Dustin. Um, we, so we don't know, like, as to who the actual person was? Well, there, there, was there any evidence that the defendant was Bestie? No, that would be where the post-separation conduct would take effect for applying but, that standard. But in, ter in terms of the evidence of pre-separation conduct, there was no evidence before the trial court that Bestie was the defendant or the, was the defendant. Not, nothing that directly pointed to him, I don't believe. And was there any evidence before the trial court that Dustin was the defendant? Um, I don't recall. I don't think so. Like, that said that this is him 100%? Right. Was there anything that identified the defendant as this individual who was Bestie or Dustin? No, I don't think so. No. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I would like to point out, though, that he still is a coworker that works with her, though, which she did admit to sleeping or having an affair with a coworker at the time, which is why that is all relevant. So it does speak to the affair with the coworker and leads to where we're at and where we're going, kind of how that all ties together. Do you right? agree with your uh, friend's comment that there were over 800 workers at Merck? Yes, but not at that specific facility. Um, and I and I don't believe, the way I understand how things work at Merck based on my conversations with them is like they have, diff like they're branched off differently and they all have different teams and groups. So I don't believe that she would that there'd be an opportunity to kind of merge with all 800 people. But was there any evidence um, uh, as to the number of people who worked at Merck at her facility? Presented to the at, trial to judge? To the trial court, at, uh, at the no. summary judgment stage. Not that I can recall. Thank you. No. Following up on Justice Berger's question, did she testify with any more specificity that Dustin then Dustin was just a coworker. That is, did she say he was in her work group or at her location? I would need to look back at her deposition transcript. I'm sorry. I'll, I can uh, I can provide that later, if if necessary. Thank you. Sorry. Um, so I do think uh, just to follow up on that again, though, I think you can hear what where it seems to be the heart of this case is just a struggle about you know, the real question is just what inferences are reasonable in this circumstance and to say you know someone did something today mm -hmm. therefore they also did it yesterday is not a reasonable inference that's a logical fallacy you, you need to have some basis to say I can assume they did it yesterday even though I don't have any direct evidence because inferring from the fact that it was today and other things like for example knowing they do the same thing every day and so we're looking here for what is the thing that would allow us to say a reasonable jury making that reasonable inference could say that the relationship after separation means that it was going on before. And we're trying to struggle with it are things like, well, that we know it was a coworker. There are many coworkers, but this yes. person was one of them. Is that, a, is that a reasonable inference or is that the kind of logical fallacy that we won't allow juries to what I can What I can tell you is that we also deposed Jessica McGinnis' wife, and she can testify that not only did she believe that he was the person she believes that these two planned it, planned their 
separations and everything. Um, the 98 messages that attorney Williams pointed out earlier, the phone calls, the 15 calls that were in the record, they were produced by her that she held onto these records for over four years and she still had these records. She considered her own filing of a claim for herself but chose not to pursue that. She's got all this stuff in her testimony as well in her own deposition and she's prepared to testify as to that. So we do intend to call her as a witness and present all that. So we do have a witness that can verify a lot of this circumstantial evidence and can bring this full circle. They were all best friends at Merck. I'm sorry, if it's somebody. Yeah, so I, I want to go back to the separation timeline. And so tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, um, uh, your client separated from his wife in December of 2016. Yes. Um, the very next month, January, um, the defendant and his former spouse separated. Yes. And then that, by April, so within two or three months, um, the defendant and your client's former spouse were openly dating. Yes. So what significance should we give to that timeline? The significance we should give to that timeline is the fact that Allison was very, first off, she was fresh out of a 12-year marriage and jumped right into a brand new relationship. They, um, that right there is a very short timeline within three months for herself. If we subtract approximately four years, she's 37 now, um, so subtracting four years, that leaves her at 33, so her entire adult life, she was already in a marriage um, for, like I said, roughly her entire adult life. And then she dives right into a serious relationship. And I think that going public with a um, person that she works with that serious is incredibly significant. And then also him terminating a 15-year relationship with his wife and publicly dating this um, other person is incredibly significant because if you just ended these incredibly long marriages with these people that you've been in love with for a very long time, you shouldn't, most people would not be able to bounce back that fast. And it's pretty telling that, you know, there's been a, probably a pretty long history of these two talking. I think, and I think a reasonable jury would also be able to um, conclude that that's a pretty quick period for them to be dating. Thank you. Counsel, I, I want to uh, yes. turn your attention to the uh, summary judgment motion on page 22 of the record. There, there's an allegation in there that the plaintiff was deposed, uh, and in the, in the course of that deposition, uh, in uh, paragraph uh, D, 4D, on uh, record page 22. It says the plaintiff stated that his wife never admitted to having an affair with the defendant, and he believes the affair was with the defendant because he put two and two together. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that speculation? Um, I think given that, so I, I don't believe that to be speculation because at the time of filing the complaint, this is three years after that that actually happened. So when he filed the complaint itself, he had already at this point figured out what had happened. So when he filed it, it was more so, I think, I don't think it was speculative. I think he was kind of looking at it in hindsight when he signed it versus at the time. I don't know if that kind of helps with that. I don't think that that was speculative. Thank you. Yes. Um, but circling back to us having a corroborating witness, um, when the three parties are working at Merck, I see that my time is running down. When the three parties are working at Merck, we do anticipate that Jessica would testify that the, um, I know that it's in the deposition, 
Um, but we do anticipate that they would testify that the three parties were very close friends, Allison, John, and um, Allison, John, and Jessica were very close friends. And then Allison and, uh, I'm sorry, Allison and Jessica would no longer be friends after she started to figure out that these two were kind of having their own side, you know, conversations and that ultimately started to ruin their marriage. So all of that started to fall apart. And I think that, you know, speaking to the original question that you had asked earlier, um, how are we supposed to, you know, um, assume that this is the same person? Um, or how are we supposed to make that leap that this conduct was his? That, you know, there is other evidence that needs to be considered and that we do have this other evidence, including that deposition that speaks to that particular issue. And I do think this case is analogous to Rodriguez. And I, um, let me see, I do think this case is analogous to Rodriguez in that um, the text message are there, the 98 messages and the wait. Okay, Council, thank you. Council, I believe your time's expired. I appreciate it, thank you. Rebuttal. Justice Allen, it looks like you found the answer to your question that I was going to ask on rebuttal with regards to separation dates. It appears that the uh, the plaintiff and his wife separated in December, and my client separated from his wife December of 2016, and my client separated from his wife in January of 2017. Thank you. Um, with regards to that point, you asked a question that I want to address: uh, how did, how did, what's the significance of those two separations? I would submit to the court. Um, I don't know what significance is. What I, what I will say is that the fact that he separated after the fact. It's still post-separation conduct that would have to be used in some form or fashion to try and relate back to the ultimate issue, which is who is Bessie in this text message that doesn't exist. Um, I believe it was Justice Berger um, who brought up the line of the deposition. And this is ultimately why we filed for summary judgment. If you look at the complaint in the record, um, the plaintiff pled this complaint in a way as if he knew the answers. He pled it that defendant engaged in sexual conduct, defendant texted my, texted my wife and, and said, and, and was talking about a prior sexual act. Defendant texted, uh, defendant is bestie, pretty much. Um, when I took his deposition, I asked him point blank how he came to the conclusion that defendant was the person his wife had an affair with. And he stated specifically, she told me she was dating someone that she worked with and I put two and two together. That's, that was all he said. And then when I confronted him on the fact that he pled it as defendant in his pleadings, he said defendant, his, defendant admitted, admitted his pleadings were worded poorly, which I would say are incorrect, obviously, because he didn't know. He doesn't know. It's not, it's not a fact that he has any evidence of. Um, the one thing we keep going back to here, or the one thing that the plaintiff keeps going back to, is that there were contacts between the parties. As I've stated, we can't deny there were contacts. They worked together. But even the Court of Appeals decision stated that there was friendship and, com and communication between the parties and that post-separation conduct can be used to prove that my client is bestie. That is, that is a huge leap for a jury to make, in our opinion. Um, it is a huge leap for a jury to make for a number of reasons, which I've stated. This text message does not exist. We have no information about who that contact is in the phone. Um, and on top of that, um, there's just no evidence whatsoever of any communications being negative. And can there be an inference that they're negative or that they were adulterous in nature? I, I don't think you can even make that argument because we don't have messages. We don't have the messages at all. There's zero precept. And I'm talking, when we're talking about a genuine issue of material fact, we're talking about what evidence are there of the elements pre-separation. And there's no evidence of inclination and opportunity pre-separation between my client and the plaintiff's wife. So we would ask the court to uphold the summary, um, the decision of the trial court. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one other thing that was asked is during the summary judgment hearing, uh, the plaintiff has repeatedly, she's, it has been decided that the depositions of Allison Beavers and Jessica um, are not to be, were not considered by the trial court and the court of appeals did not consider them in the decision. They were, however, the contents of those depositions were argued um, or the, the, I guess the highlights of those depositions were argued. They're in the transcript for the record for your honors. Um, and specifically, um, if you look on volume one, page 25, Ms. Wazinski was arguing 
and she stated, as per paragraph 4C in the motion for summary ju judgment, there isn't a requirement necessarily that we prove who Bestie is on the phone. And I would submit to the court that is patently false. And the reason for that is because the only evidence of an affair or inclination and opportunity are that text message. And we don't have any information about that text message, the dates in that text message, or who the parties are involved in that chat. I would also point out that in um, Mr. Beaver's, the plaintiff's deposition, he also had concerns about his wife being inappropriately involved with other individuals. Um, so we would submit to the court that we um, thank you for your time. I appreciate you hearing from us today, and we hope that you will consider um, upholding the trial court's decision and overturning the Court of Appeals, um, overturning that decision, and that there is no issue of material fact with, the with regards to the pre-separation acts that would establish the elements of alienation of affection and criminal conversations. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone.